Let's begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. And the Apostles' Creed, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. All right, and uh, we'll go down to the catechism memory work, and we're, into, we're actually into the table of duties now. Um, so we'll just... Uh, I'll just say what the catechism portion is, and then we'll go right into the Bible memory work. To bishops, pastors, and preachers, the overseer must be above reproach, the husband of but one wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him with proper respect. 1 Timothy 3, 2-4. Let us pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. And uh, Luther's evening prayer. I thank you, my heavenly Father, through Jesus Christ, your dear Son, that you have graciously kept me this day, and I pray that you would forgive me all my sins where I have done wrong, and graciously keep me this night. For into your hands I commend myself, my body and soul and all things. Let your holy angel be with me, that the evil foe may have no power over me. Amen. The Almighty and merciful Lord, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, bless us and keep us. Amen. All right. Um, so we're back in to the table of duties, and this really will be our last session for the catechism, uh, for the what we believe class. And um, if you have any questions on anything we've talked about in the last however many months we've been doing this class, um, now would be the time to ask, not right now, but um, the, the, at the, uh, whenever we finish up the table of duties, um, we'll open it up for questions, kind of final questions or conversations we want to have about what we believe. Um, but let's go ahead and finish up these last three things in the table of duties. So you can be thinking about if you do have any any questions uh, or anything you want to talk about. But the last the last three vocations or stations in life that we want to talk about when it comes to, as we've said, putting the Ten Commandments into practice in these ordered relationships or these holy orders that God has given us. Um, we've talked about... Uh, 
different things in family, church, and society. And last week, we really focused on family relationships. Um, there's kind of some extensions of the family and kind of extensions of church and society here that uh, we want to mention that Luther draws out of the scriptures. And we're going to be spending some time in 1 Timothy 4 and 5, um, but also in 1 Peter. And uh, those, those three things are uh, to youth and to widows, and then we have some more broad things on to everyone. Um, but let's uh, just go ahead and start with the youth. So First uh, Peter 5, 5 to 6. We're going to do that first, but then I, I do want to bring in some of First Timothy as well. First Peter 5, 5 to 6. Young men, in the same way, be submissive to those who are older. All of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, because God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. All right, so on the surface, first of all, the the thing to say here, obviously, is that um, biblically speaking, and from a Christian perspective, there is this concept of youth and elders, right? That And, and when elders are elder, uh, that is, when someone is older than someone else, and of course, there's a range here in how much older someone might be, right? Um, that means that they've lived, lived longer and have some wisdom about them, right? So wisdom in the Bible is, is much uh, to be desired, right? In the Revelation today, in the reading I'm going to preach on, one of the characteristics that the saints are singing about God in heaven is that he is, um, or actually it's the angels that are singing at that point, uh, that they say uh, wisdom belongs to God, right? And so what is wisdom biblically? Wisdom is not just knowledge, right? It's not just data, right? Knowledge is like the data download. Like you can get a lot of knowledge, you know, especially with the internet today. You can get a lot of knowledge. Wisdom is how to apply that knowledge, right? How do you actually put into practice the knowledge that you have, right? So the, the classic story in the Bible when Solomon asked for wisdom is these two uh, ladies come to, to King Solomon and um, they have they each have a baby and one of the babies is dead because it was um, rolled over on in, in the nighttime. And the ladies are both claiming that the other baby is, that the live baby is theirs and that the other lady killed their, their own baby and that they, one of them's claiming that they switched it. And you know the story, right? And, and what does Solomon do? Uh, Solomon doesn't just try and kind of make a decision or uh, kind of hold some trial. He's wise in that he, what he does is he says, um, bring the live baby to me and we'll cut that, that baby in half and then each, each woman can take half, which sounds ridiculous, right? But the real mother, one of the mothers says, yeah, that's fine, let's do that. And then the, the real mother says, no, let the other... Let the other mom have the baby, right? Because she values the life of her baby more than she values her being a mother. And so he's able to discern who whose baby is the real mother, right? So that's, that's the picture of wisdom, right? It's an ability to not just have kind of knowledge about things, but the ability to figure out uh, what the godly and discerning thing is to do in a given situation, Right to use knowledge, um, but also to be apt and to be able to teach and to be able to think and um, even to be kind of in that case kind of sly, right? 
um, that we're supposed to be wise as serpents, right, and innocent as doves. So that's that's this idea of wisdom. Why am I talking about wisdom? Um, oh yes, elders have wisdom, right? So when the the way that you gain wisdom is obviously through Christ, right, who is wisdom, um, and through being in the scriptures, right? The, and what is the pro, what do the proverbs say? The proverbs are all about gaining wisdom. Fearing the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, right? But there is a sense in which wisdom is gained uh, through experience, right? By so, like, I mean, I think about this with being a parent, right? I'm a lot more wise of a parent now than I was, you know, six years ago when Matthias was born. And the reason for that is because now I've had multiple kids and had to deal with multiple situations. And now when situations come up, right, um, with Andrew, it's a lot easier to deal with, right? I'm, I'm a lot wiser than when those same situations came up with Matthias or Marcus, right? So um, wisdom does come with time as well, and especially with time being in the Lord and being in the fear of the Lord. And so uh, when we when we see these verses about the youth, right, this is the reason why the young men are to be submissive to the older. And part of it's also just the order of creation too. Like we last week when we talked about men and women and, and husbands and wives, we talked about this order of creation that God creates the man and gives him the mission and then creates the woman out of him and makes her his helper. Well, in the same way, right, in the order of creation, in the way God's designed the world, how are children born? They're, they're born from parents who are of age to bear children, right? And so naturally, uh, people who are older have more wisdom than, than, the, than their children, right? Than people who are younger, right? So um, it's, with, it's also just within the order of creation that Peter says here that for the youth to be submissive to the elders, right? Right? Uh, be submissive to those who are older. and But then notice, again, with all of these ordered relationships, that it's not like an absolute authority, right? So it's not like just because someone is older that they don't have uh, any responsibility toward the younger, right? The younger are supposed to be submissive to them, but there's also a responsibility that comes with having that wisdom, right? And if you read that book of Proverbs, as an example of wisdom, what is the whole book of Proverbs? It's a father passing down wisdom to his son, right? And so the older is supposed to pass down wisdom um, as, as well. But um, I, I just wanted to point that out because there, what does Peter immediately follow that up with? He follows it up with a caveat. All of you, right, which means older and younger, this is similar to what he said to masters and slaves, right? With masters and slaves, uh, what did he say? He said, you all have the same master in heaven, Right? Um, so here, all of you, older implied both older and younger, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God opposes the, opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. Okay, so that's the verse that he gives for youth. Now, what's kind of interesting is that what comes right after this is um, the address to widows. And we'll turn over to 1 Timothy 5 for that. But I want to also point out in 1 Timothy, there's also some stuff about um, elders and and young here along with this section about widows in 
1 Timothy 5. And there's also stuff about masters and slaves. So 1 Timothy 5, uh, 1 Timothy 4 and 5 is a very good place to go for some of this table of duty stuff, even though Luther does not list it in the table of duties. And um, I want to talk about widows, but I'm going to go, I want to kind of stay on the youth and elders here for just one more minute, uh, just because it's kind of interesting in in that it leads into the widows as well. Okay, so um, Timothy is actually an excellent example of this because Timothy himself is young, right? And he's called to be a pastor in Christ's church. So some of this also goes back to um, what we talked about with in the church with pastors, right? That we read those verses from 1 Timothy 3, uh, which we just had in the memory work earlier too. So uh, in 1 Timothy 4, th- this is a pretty interesting verse here. Let's see. Oh yeah, uh, verse 12, right? So um, in verse 11, Paul's encouraging him to continue steadfast in the doctrine and the true teaching. Uh, don't give yourself over to old wives' tales, uh, so on and so forth. And then in verse 12, don't let anyone look down on you because you are young, but set an example for the believers in speech, in life, in love, in faith, and in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to preaching, and to teaching. Do not neglect your gift, which was given you through a prophetic message when the body of elders laid their hands on you. Um, there's, a, there's a lot here. I mean, there's things about ordination here. There's things about the job of pastors, right, with the public reading of Scripture. Um, there's a lot here. But that, that verse there, don't let anyone look down on you because you are young. Again, I just want to point out that the, it cuts both ways, right? When we're talking about to the youth and we're also implying to the elders because, again, these are ordered relationships, right? And both parties in the relationship – uh, have a responsibility. So when we talk about the fourth commandment, for instance, right, where we see these ordered relationships, and we talk about honor your father and your mother, we can talk about children honoring their father and mother. We can also talk about what fathers and mothers are supposed to provide for their children. Right? So it does cut both ways. And uh, so here Timothy is told by Paul, don't let anyone look down on you because you're young. Right? And that this is not one of the... Uh, requirements of pastors in the New Testament church is that they have some amount of life experience or something like that, right? Uh, Timothy, basically in our, if we were to put it in our context, our context, he goes straight from seminary, like straight from high school to college to seminary to being a pastor, right? Kind of like myself. Um, he doesn't, uh, he's not a second career pastor, right? And um, this, he know, Paul knows this is a danger. He says, don't let anyone look down on you because you're young. The same thing, interestingly, by the way, I just started teaching on uh, Jeremiah this morning. The same thing happens to Jeremiah in his calling as a prophet. Right? He's also young. And uh, he's also told by God, don't let them look down on you because they're young. You're young. So uh, kind of an interesting thing. Um, but what does the Lord tell Jeremiah there? The Lord says, I'm going to put my word in your mouth. Right? My word will be powerful for you to preach. And that's, and that's the exact same thing that Paul tells Timothy here um, 
You set an example for them in speech and life and love and faith and purity and devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to preaching and to teaching, right? That's the power of being a pastor. Not your personality, not your life experience, not any of these other things. It's the preaching and teaching in the pure word of God. That's the power in, in the office. Okay, but anyway, going back to this uh, youth and elders thing, right? That there is this danger that there can be an idolatry in the wisdom that comes with being an elder, right? This is why the, uh, back in Peter, right, he said, make sure you stay humble, right? All of you humble yourselves, right? Um, that on one hand, the young people need to look at the older people as examples. They need to ask the older people for wisdom, right? They, they should not, um, you know, young men think, can think of themselves as arrogant, and they should not be arrogant, right? They should um, realize that other people do have more life experience than them. On the other hand, the elders should not look on the young people and say, "Oh, they don't know anything. They're just young. They're just they're just uh, they're too energetic. They don't they don't know how to slow down yet." Um, you know those types of things. Neither neither group, neither the young or the elders, the youth or the elders, should look on each other with contempt, right? They, they should value each other for what each other has to offer, right? The youth has to offer energy. The elders have to offer wisdom, and they should look on it, um, to, to each other for those things, right, and not with contempt, right? And this, this can be a problem um, in families and in, and in churches. Um, I've seen it happen in churches uh, that, you know, the, um, those who are the elders in the church, and I don't mean that in the term of the LCMS term, elders, I mean, the, the way that Peter's talking about it here. There's a fly up here. Um, but uh, those who are elder in the church, uh, that you know, they have a, a pride about them that they don't want the young people to do anything or change anything or use their energy in any type of way. And the young people get an arrogance about them that they don't think the old people know what's going on in the world or uh, this or that or the other thing, right? So... Um, this can this can be a problem, and I think these verses are helpful, right? Uh, they help balance us out. They help they help point us in the right direction. Um, and then and and so that and it leads into First Timothy five, which is where we're also going to talk about widows. And within widows, there's also going to be this elder youth relationship as well, um, because Paul's going to say some things about how the widows should um, help the young young women. All right, so. At the beginning of 1 Timothy 5, 5 verse 1, uh, we have some more advice to uh, the kind of family relationship within the church. And remember, 1 Timothy is a pastoral epistle. So a lot of this of what Paul's telling Timothy is about relationships within the church, I think is the focus here. But so he just said, he just said on one hand, don't let them look down on you because you're young. On the other hand, he also says, do not rebuke an older man harshly, but exhort him as if he were your father. Right? So he says to Timothy as a pastor, um, look, you're, you're a young pastor. You're going to have to rebuke some of the older men. When you do that, do it in a way that's not harsh, right? in the way you would kind of rebuke your father about something. Right? Um, so, and and you, kind of, you can imagine how this is, right? So if... Um, you know, if I'm if I'm with my dad and my, and my dad, uh, you know, say me and my dad are doing something together, 
and I see him do something that's like a mistake, right? Say we're building something and he starts to put a screw in the wrong place or something like that. Um, I'm not, as, as a son, it's not my job to yell at him and be like, hey, you put that screw in the wrong place. You need to go put it over here instead. Uh, how, how would a son say something like that to his father? He would say something like, hey, is that, is that screw supposed to go there? Let's ch- maybe we should check the plans about that or something like that. You know, it'd be kind of a gentle rebuke, right? Well, this is what Paul's advice to, the, um, to, to Timothy is as a young pastor, that it's uh, when you have these youth and elder relationships, you need to treat them as such, right? And you're going to have, again, this humility that goes along with these relationships, Okay, and then he goes on and says, treat younger men, younger men as brothers, older men, older women as mothers, and younger women as sisters with absolute purity. Right. So, um, and this is a really good verse, by the way, because it shows that the church really is supposed to be modeled after the family. Right. And this is why Luther always liked to talk about these three estates: the family, the church, and society, as kind of being in this order that these are kind of the three governments or three estates or three kingdoms among men, that it all starts in the family unit, and then the family unit expands out into the church, which is made up of multiple family units, and then uh, the church expands out into the larger society, where again, the larger society is made up of, of family units and even of multiple churches. And the relationships, the ordered relationships that exist in those um, kind of model after each other, right? But it all it all starts with the fourth commandment. It all starts with honor your father and your mother, right? That's the first foundational ordered relationship that there is. All right. Um, and then this is when uh, Paul goes on to talk about widows, okay? So this is the next thing that Luther mentions, and he only includes verses five and six, but we'll read a little bit of the broader context here. So I'm just going to start at verse 3. Give proper recognition to those widows who are really in need, but if a widow has children or grandchildren, these should learn, first of all, to put their religion into practice by caring for their own family and so repaying their parents and grandparents, for this is pleasing to God. The widow who is really in need and left all alone puts her hope in God and continues day and night to pray and to ask God for help. But the widow who lives for pleasure is dead even while she lives. Give the people these instructions too so that no one may be open to blame. If anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for his immediate family, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. No widow may be put on the list of widows unless she is over 60, has been faithful to her husband and is well known for her good deeds, such as bringing up children, showing hospitality, washing the feet of the saints, helping those in trouble and devoting herself to all kinds of good deeds. As for younger widows, do not put them on such a list. For when their sensual desires overcome their dedication to Christ, they want to marry, thus bring judgment. they bring judgment on themselves because they have broken their first pledge. Besides, they get into the habit of being idle and going about from house to house. And not only do they become idlers, but also gossips and busybodies saying things they ought not to. So I counsel younger widows to marry, to have children, to manage their homes, and to give the enemy no opportunity for slander. Some have, in fact, already turned away to Satan." All right. Um, 
we're going to stop there. There's a, there's a whole lot there, obviously. Um, we'll start with those verses that, that Luther focuses on, verses 5 and 6. The widow who is really in need and left all alone puts her hope in God and continues night and day to pray and ask God for help. But the widow who lives for pleasure is dead even while she lives. So the issue here is that, um, again, with the connection of the family church and the church, that whenever uh, a widow... Um, and, and this, this could also go some of, not all of this, but some of this also can go for widowers, although, um, it's not as much just culturally speaking, it's not as much of an issue, uh, for what Timothy is talking about. And it's also some of the things he says here, again, where we distinguish between man and woman, um, in these ordered relationships. And so some of these things do just kind of apply to women, but, the issue here is that when a widow, when a wife loses her husband, her focus then, as uh, we read in some of those earlier verses, should be, for, uh, should be on her family and on the church, right? Her focus should not be out in the world uh, living pleasure for herself. And the context of this by the way, this I think this is really important. The context of this is you remember in the Old Testament, all the verses about widows, what do they constantly say? It's warning the church, take care of the widows and the orphans, right? Take care of the widows and the orphans. And widows do need to be taken care of. Again, um, we talked about this a little bit when we talked about uh, husbands and wives and um, this whole concept of working inside or outside the home uh, from a biblical perspective, uh, that in in this time, uh, widows could not just go out and get a job, right? Widows needed to be taken care of by someone, right? And um, we didn't have things, they didn't have things like 403Bs or 401Ks set up, right? They didn't have Roth IRAs set up. Um, or, you know, government Medicaid or Social Security or any of these types of things either, right? When a widow lost her husband, oftentimes she lost her livelihood, right? And so this is why it's take care of the widows and the orphans, right? Because the widows have to be taken care of. And where do, who takes care of the widows, right? Well, first their family and then the church, right? And it is interesting when you look at this list, by the way, this is a total aside, but our world wants to switch these around, Right? So whenever people fall on hard times, where do they first go these days? The government, right, to society. And then they go and ask the church for, you know, whatever, Kroger cards, whatever, food pantries, things like that. And then, last case scenario, people will go and ask their families for help, right? The Bible presents the opposite view, right? Your family should help take care of you first, right, your broader family, and there's no shame in, um, in, a, in a family helping take care of a family, right? Um, I can give some practical examples of that if you want. And then, and then the church should be willing to help out, right, for its members and its people in the household of faith. And, and then the broader society, right? And uh, I know I'm all over the place, but uh, there is this verse in here, right, that um, when it comes to helping your, your family— and providing for your relatives, right? Verse eight, if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for his immediate family, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever, 
right? That there is, um, within the biblical perspective, and especially with the fourth commandment, there's this, sometimes it, I, I've heard it called this, this uh, ordering of loves. Ordering of loves. That we know above all, right, we have to love God and love our neighbor as ourself. And there's a sense in which every human on earth is our neighbor, right? We're all created by God. We're all, we're all equally uh, and wonderfully made by our creator. But when it comes down to decisions about, okay, I'm going to love my neighbor, say I have some alms to give, right? Say I'm going to give 2% of my, my income to alms to, to help care for the poor and needy. Where do I, where do I give that to? Right? Do I, um, if I have a family member in need, do I help them? If there's people in the church that are in need, do I help them? Do I send it to, um, or do I do I send it to, uh, give it to the local food pantry, or do I send it to somewhere in Africa? Right? Um, who do I give the alms to? Right? And we have this uh, concept and vocation of the ordering of loves, and I kind of think about these estates like concentric circles, right? So your first love is your family. Your second love is your church. And then your third love is your society. And even the society, right, it should start as locally as possible, right? So it starts with, say, Oxford, and then it moves out to Mississippi, and then it moves out to the United States, right? Um, And then it moves out to the, the rest of the world or something like that, right? that there's these concentric circles of love. And it's the old, like, in, philo- in philosophy, you get this question sometimes, if you've ever taken a philosophy class. Um, if you're in a burning building and um, you can only help so many people out uh, out the door, right? Who do you help out the door? Do you help your uh, family out the door or do you help, you know, the random uh, the random people in the room that you don't know out the door. And that's a very simplistic way to put it. You can make the situation more and more complicated, right? Like if you say, well, you can help your son or you can help three other people, right? And who's, what lives are more valuable? Well, I think the, Christ, the Bible has a pretty simple answer to this, which is that there's an ordering to your loves, right? Um, you love the people who God has given you charge over first, right? So you love your family first, and uh, you don't sacrifice your family to, for the sake of helping someone else right now. Um, yes, if you can, you're going to help as many people as possible. You're going to love as many people as possible. But you have an ordering of your loves, right? You love your family first, right? And you love your church first, and then you love your community first um, before going on and on and out. So there, this, this order, I think, of family church society is, is very important in this way. All right, sorry, I know I'm all... Like I said, I'm all over the place today on this, but um, okay. So back to widows. So the widow um, is going to need to be taken care of, and Paul's making the point here that it's important that um, the widow herself seeks to be taken care of by her family, right, and seeks to take help take care of her family first and her church first, and be devoted to God, right, and not taken away now that she um, is kind of free from. Uh, the care of a husband, right? Now that she doesn't have this job as helpmeet anymore, 
that she doesn't go off and become worldly, right? She doesn't go off and and start to live uh, just trying to do all the things that make her happy rather than uh, serving her family and still serving God, right? Because just because this one ordered relationship has gone away doesn't mean that all these other ordered relationships aren't still there. That's kind of what Paul's saying here, right? Now, um, a couple other things to point out here about the widows is uh, also one we should deal with this idea of the list of the widows. So again, this is like the official list of the widows that need to be taken care of, right? Because you have to take care of the widows and the orphans. So um, what does Paul uh, advise here? He advises that the older widows who really can't take care of themselves are, are put on the list, right? So the ones who are over 60 and have been faithful to their husband and are, are known for their good deeds, right? And and uh, this is also where the early church idea of deaconesses comes up, by the way, is that these widows who are um, able to do good deeds are um, and don't have the burden of taking care of a family anymore, of nurturing a family, that they can kind of be nurturers in the church, right? So... Um, this is really what the old idea of deaconesses was. And I'll give you a practical example. When I was on Vicarage, there was um, a lady who was homebound and very sickly and, and couldn't bathe herself, couldn't take care of herself, really, these types of things. And there was a lady in the congregation um, that was a widow and basically just volunteered, you know, I'll be her in-home nurse, basically. Like, not she didn't live there, but she would go there regularly and take care of this other, other woman. That's what a deaconess is, right? That's what a, uh, that's what this kind of widow is that Paul's talking about here, um, that devotes herself to good deeds in the church whenever that time in life happens. Okay. But the younger widows, right? Um, if if you leave the younger widows uh, to do that, it's not going to work out. Right, because the younger widows still are um, basically, you know, able to have families and 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 be married. And he says, uh, just by nature of of the life that will happen with them, they're going to need to to marry and to have children and to manage their homes, right? And that would be better for them. It's very similar to what Paul says about men um, when he says it's better for a man to get married than to burn with passion, right? It's better for a man to marry than to burn with passion that instead of accidentally falling into um, six commandment sins, it's better for these young men and these young women to get married and to have families and serve God in those ordered relationships in that way, right? Um, so he's he makes this distinguishing between the, the older and the younger widows, which again is that youth-elder relationship, right? The youth and the elders are different from one another, right? And that that's maybe the overall theme here is that the, when it comes to these ordered relationships and the table of duties and what we're talking about is that not everyone's the same, right? You have to make distinctions. You have to make distinctions between men and women, between younger and older, between uh, who, the different vocations in a family, right? Son, daughter, daughter, brother, father, mother, husband, wife. You have to make distinctions in the church, pastor and hearers. You have to make distinctions in the society, government and citizens and work, employers and employees. Um, and then even in things like widows, younger widows and older widows, right? Um, or youth and elders, right? We have to make these distinctions. 
Um, one, for a very basic reason, because the Bible makes these distinctions, right? The Bible talks about the difference between all these people and their, their different jobs and duties, biblically speaking, how the Ten Commandments particularly applies in their life, right? How they love their neighbor, right? Love your neighbor. How do I love my neighbor? Well, what stations do you have in life? Who are your neighbors? You're going to love them in those particular ways, right? And then secondly, uh, because we have to make these distinctions um, simply because on a more fundamental level, let's say, uh, people are not the same, right? And, and they're not interchangeable, right? So I can't become a mother, right? No matter how hard I try, right? I cannot become a mother or a sister, right? Um, and in this current time in my life, right? In this current vocation that I have, I can't uh, simply be a hearer of the word, right? I mean, in one sense, I'm still a hearer of the word, but not simply, right? As, as the pastor, I have a different role. Um, and it's, um, you know, it, it's, uh, and, and, and vice versa, right? We couldn't just, I couldn't just sit down today when the service starts and just um, draw lots and have one of you come up here and, and start preaching instead of me, right? Um, that, that just doesn't work that way. We have to have roles. Um, as I've said before, Christians are not anarchists, right? It's not like just complete chaos. We have orders in life. And, and these are, to sum it up, these are holy orders, right? These are holy orders, orders that are given in holy scripture. All right, so then finally, um, Luther uh, does conclude with directions to everyone. And Romans 13, 9, um, I'm not even going to bother turning there. It's literally just a quotation of, of the second great commandment, love your neighbor as yourself, right? That's what everyone should do. And then 1 Timothy 2, um, you're probably already on that page. Um, I urge then, first of all, that requests, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for everyone for kings and all those in authority, that we may live in peace, peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. That's actually one and two. But um, the idea there is that there are things that do apply to everyone, and that's the things of the Ten Commandments, broadly speaking, right? That we would pray and give thanks and give thanksgiving and that we would love our neighbor as ourselves, and that we would basically love God and love neighbor, right? That's what Luther is getting at. So he kind of starts broad, and then he gets really narrow, and then he ends broad, is, is the ordering of the table of duties there. All right, any questions on the table of duties? Or on youth, widows, any of that stuff? Yeah, John? Then the church should take them in. Yeah, we didn't cover those verses particularly, but um, yeah, then the the church should should take care of them. Uh, the church is constantly commanded to do that in Scripture, to take care of the take in the orphans and the widows. Yeah, right. Yeah, Charlie. Yeah, 
Yeah, it's good. I took care of her, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's good. And she took care of me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's always good to get some home cooking, right? Yeah. Um, for sure, yeah. So it seems like there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a, a station or a duty that exists now that didn't exist when, when Luther wrote this, and that's retirees. And I, I see a lot of retirees just check out, and they've got all kinds of experience. And I was on friends of mine back yeah. then. You should be the dudes leading the committees and stuff because you have the experience and the time. Don't be expecting the young men to do that. And I see these guys just check out. Yeah, and I think um, I think some of that widow advice is good for that. Like, it. that's why I said some of it applies to men and some of it doesn't. Um, but... Like like the stuff about like nurturing households doesn't really apply to men, but that that's that is good because um, they the el- yeah that that's part of the duty of the elders when you talk about youth and elders is to pass on their wisdom, right, and to use their wisdom for good. And um, when you do have like someone who's yeah a retiree who doesn't have kids at home who has time and has still has energy, right. Um, but they live like, what's that verse, right? Um, that the widows should not live only for themselves. Where's the verse I'm looking for? Um, yeah, verse like six in First Timothy five. But the widow who lives for pleasure is dead even while she lives. And that's kind of a hard hitting verse too, because when you think about retirees, um, because you can see some people who retire. And I, I see this all the time, that the ones, and and I'm I'm preaching to the choir because anyone who's retired in this room is here at Sunday school, so I'm not talking about you. Um, but there are retirees who, uh, you know, basically sit around and don't do anything all day, and they do die quicker, right? The ones who keep moving are the ones. If you want to live long, you got to keep moving. That's my. I'm not. Uh, a doctor, but if you want to live a long time, you got to keep moving. I've seen that over and over and over again. You got to keep busy. You got to keep doing stuff. And the best way to keep busy is by serving your family and serving your church, right? And serving your local community. That's how you keep busy, right? Serving others. So I do think some of those widow verses apply to that. I've thought about that before. Yeah, that's a really good point. Any other questions on any of that stuff? I like First Timothy because... One, it's about pastors, right? Um, but two, it's about Paul telling Timothy as a pastor how to handle things in his church, and it's super particular, right? Like, it it seems um, it's like if if you were to ask a pastor, hey, if you were to write a book of the Bible about how to be a pastor. Most pastors today, I think, would not write about things like how to deal with the widows, right? It would be much more broad than that. Um, maybe it'd be about like leadership concepts or something like that. But uh, but when Paul writes how to be a pastor to Timothy, he's like, this is how you deal with the old guys. This is how you deal with the widows. This is how you deal with the young widows, right? It's, um, it's actually very helpful in that regard, right? Because it's very – anyway, that's a total aside, but – all right, let me open it up then to questions um, about the entire catechism, since that wraps up our What We Believe class. Uh, what time is it? How much? Oh, here's the thing. 
Okay, we got 10 minutes. Um, yeah, we got 10 minutes. Who, who's got any questions? Or we can end early. You got the whole catechism as, as a cannon fodder here, so whatever you want. <laughs> Nothing. I don't have a question, but yeah, I, go ahead. I, I will make a statement. Please do. Um, you're talking about family and church. <laughs> My suggestion to all that you're young, uh, watch how you treat your children, because someday you're going to be dependent on them. Yeah, that's true. And then the way you treated them will be reflected in how they treat you. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> um, yeah, no comment. All right. Yeah, yeah. No, that's good. That's what this 10 minutes is for. Sure. Yeah, so um, there's a number of ways to go about this question, but basically you have um, what's called uh, – yeah, sorry, I'm just thinking as I erase here. I know, so you got the um, – yeah, I'll repeat the question for a podcast. So what about the Apocrypha? So the question is really about canonicity, I think is how I'll address it. So the idea of the canon is what books were and what books were not accepted in the Bible. Now, the question of the Old Testament canon and the question of the New Testament canon are uh, two different questions. The question of the Old Testament canon is a little bit more difficult because... We don't have a lot of uh, evidence of discussions about this in history. Basically, what we have is that amongst various Jewish groups, there is a set of books that is preserved. And we get reference to that set of books in the New Testament times from, excuse me, from various sources. So... One of those sources is the Bible, right? So in Luke 24, for instance, in the New Testament, Paul or Jesus explains to the disciples on the road to Emmaus all the things concerning himself from the books of Moses, the Psalms, and the prophets, which is basically all of the Old Testament, right? Just those, those terms, the books of Moses and the prophets, Jesus uses lots of times also, extra-biblical sources like Josephus, for instance, um, uses that terminology and then lists out the books. And lo and behold, they're the same books um, of the Old Testament that the church has always agreed this is the Old Testament. So basically, with the Old Testament canon, the best we can do is say, um, look, the church has always agreed upon this set of books being the Old Testament. This is the set of books that was preserved 
And uh, this is the set of books that Jesus himself references, right? But we don't have a lot of discussions about exactly that uh, set of books. Now, what was not included, I can also talk about the New Testament canon. That's kind of a different question. What was not included in the canon, in the set of books known as the Old Testament books, or Moses and the Prophets, were these books in the middle of the Old New Testament called the Apocrypha. And the Apocrypha, so there's about, at the end of the Old Testament, um, we hear that the prophets go silent, and that silence lasts for about 300 years until you get John the Baptist at the beginning of the New Testament. right? So we have this 300 years silence. Well, that's the time when the Apocrypha or the Apocryphal books are written. And I can't remember exactly what all books are in there. The big ones are like First and Second Maccabees. Um, and then you get a couple additions to other books. So you get some additions to the book of Esther. You get some additions to the book of Daniel. Um, one of my favorite stories is Bell and the Dragon. That's an addition to the book of Daniel. Um, these things are published in uh, along with what's called the Septuagint. The Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Okay, this is the Greek OT. And it's abbreviated sometimes if I write this on the board, uh, LXX, which is the Roman numerals for 70, which I can explain why it's called that later. Um, but anyway, that's the Septuagint. The Apocrypha is published along with the Septuagint. Um, and from that time... The Septuagint has a certain authority in the Christian church. Part of its authority is that this is what Jesus and Paul quote. Okay, so Jesus and Paul don't quote Hebrew, they quote Greek, and they quote uh, basically directly out of the Septuagint. So uh, the Septuagint does take on this authority, and then along with that uh, authority that the Septuagint gets for a very long time in New Testament history, whenever people publish Bibles, they include the Septuagint. But the church also always agreed from the earliest councils in the New Testament that the, that, that the Apocrypha was not part of the Old Testament in the sense that it was not canonical. In other words, canonical, when we say the word canonical, um, what we're saying is what is God's word, right? What is capital G, capital W, God's word, right? What the church has always said about the Apocrypha is that it's very helpful uh, for history purposes because it covers some of these things that happen in this 300-year gap. So it helps us understand how we get from the prophets rebuilding the temple like Ezra to the Pharisees and Sadducees showing up when Jesus and John the Baptist are preaching. It covers that, uh, that era of history. And so um, Luther published it in, in the Bible he translated, and he wrote an introduction to it that also just basically said that, is that it's very helpful history, but it's also not canon, right? It's also not canon. And so... Uh, that's basically my take on it, is that we should read it as history. And, I, and I'll also say, like, 
so what time is it? How much time do I have? I got one minute. Okay. Um, there's something analogous to the Apocrypha for the New Testament called the Apostolic Fathers, which I don't have time to talk about. I would like to talk about it. But basically what I would say about the Apocrypha and the Apostolic Fathers is it's kind of a shame like that it got in Protestantism, it got disconnected from the Bible because on one hand, I get it because it's not God's word and we need to be really clear about what God's word is. On the other hand, we also don't really read it anymore. And I think in some ways it would be better to read like, if you're going to go to secondary sources, right? So you have the primary source, you have the Bible. If you're going to go to secondary sources, some of the first secondary sources we should go to to help us understand the Bible are the Apocrypha and the Apostolic Fathers. In other words, to say that they're good, right? Like they're, they're good writings um, because they enlighten some of our understanding of Scripture and they are helpful for understanding, um, in the case of the Apocrypha, this intertestamental period, and in the case of the Apostolic Fathers, the early church. So... Um, Whatever that's worth, that's that's kind of my take on it. Does that answer your question? Yeah, I, I think I was just I just remember it being, you know, if you if you think there's parts of the Old Testament that are difficult reading, I mean the Apocrypha is pretty Yeah. Well, it, it's some of it's difficult, some of it's not. I mean yeah. it's it's similar to the Old Testament in that like there's a lot of stories. Yeah, yeah. You have you have certain stories that are um kind of weird and then you have but then you also just have history as well. And one of the reasons it's not canonical, by the way, is that there are some glaring historical errors. And so the church said, well, obviously this is not like pure because it can't even get some of history that we know, right? So. Right. Um, and I think the, the instructor on that kind of put it that way too, saying we don't know if these were stories written to illustrate. Right. If they really happened, yeah. Really yeah. Yeah. Um, I, w- I will say our liturgy has generally appreciated the Apocrypha. So sometimes in the introits, um, whenever we say the introit in church, you know, uh, sometimes they're most of, most of them are from the Psalms. Sometimes it'll just say liturgical text in the little reference instead of, uh, you know, Psalm, whatever. Whenever it says liturgical text, that's almost always from the Apocrypha. Yeah. And then also the Easter vigil service. Um, traditionally, the Easter vigil service always included a canticle known. A canticle just means a Bible song, a song from the Bible. It always included a canticle um, called the Song of the Three Young Men, which is a song that the three young men sang in the fiery furnace. That's from the Apocrypha. Um, that's one of the additions to Daniel. So um, our liturgy has kind of always appreciated the Apocrypha in that regard, but... Um, yeah, I think it's kind of a shame we don't read it as much anymore. On the other hand, I think it's also good that people don't think it's the Bible. So, yeah. All right, any other questions? All right, uh, well, next week we will start on the Gospel of Mark, which I'm excited about. And uh, with that, we'll close in a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for this day. Uh, we thank and praise you for all the gifts that you give to us, especially for your word. Uh, for teaching us how to uh, not only believe, but also how to live according to your word. We pray that you would open the hearts and minds of all here today to hear your word 
and be edified by it. We pray this through your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.